Matchbook presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. So today we're talking about the Sorcerer's Stone. Welcome to episode five of First Years. This is the episode where we finish the book. We're going to be going over chapters 13 through the end. How do we feel? Congratulations, you've made it through your first Harry Potter book. I hope these episodes have been helpful as a guide so you get more out of your experience reading this series than you otherwise normally would. And if it has been, we'd love for you to give us a rating or a review on Podchaser and Apple Podcasts to help others find us and start their journeys as well. And I want to give a huge shout out and thank you and hugs to Magrat Puttyfoot on Twitter and Cat Cave Studio and Muggle in Khakis on Instagram, who have all shouted this podcast out and said such wonderful things. And I'm so glad you're here and listening and enjoying. Thank you so, 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 so much. You all get house points, which I think means that Hufflepuff is still in the lead. So, chapter 13. Harry dreams of his parents disappearing in a flash of green light while somebody laughs, and we learn that Snape will ref the next Quidditch match. And we finally learn who Nicholas Flamel is. Thank goodness. He was mentioned on the back of Dumbledore's chocolate frog card that Harry opened when he was on the train going to Hogwarts, and this is a perfect example of how J.K. Rowling slips in little details that seem to not matter but definitely come back later, and it's one of those things where you're just like, oh man, it was right there, like, and I just skipped over it because I didn't think it mattered. Uh, So this is a perfect example of that. We also learn that Dumbledore defeated Grindelwald in 1945 and that he discovered the 12 uses of dragon's blood. And he works on alchemy with his partner, Nicholas Flamel, who is the only known maker of the Sorcerer's Stone. He's over 600 years old, loves opera, and lives with his wife in Devon. And when I read this, it was so clear as to why he would be such good friends with Dumbledore. They're so similar. Like, they're both men who are very accomplished but are very quirky. I can totally see them going to the opera together and just having, like, the best time while probably, you know, discussing the 12 uses of dragon's blood or something like that. Nicholas Flamel was an actual person, but whether he was an alchemist or not is up for debate. So he was a French scribe and manuscript seller, but his reputation as an alchemist only came after his death. He died in 1418, but the stories of his reputation came around in the 17th century, stating that he had discovered the Philosopher's Stone and achieved immortality. And one thing that overlaps with Harry Potter is that his wife was really named Perinel, uh, but they owned several properties and ran two shops. And they were wealthy, but they didn't have the same kind of wealth that legend says they had, uh, so there's no real proof that he was involved with any kind of alchemy. So moving on to the Quidditch match, Harry catches the snitch early, and Ron beats up Malfoy, which is like an incredible moment, and Harry says, quote, He couldn't ever remember feeling happier. He'd really done something to be proud of now. 
No one could say he was just a famous name anymore, unquote. And this stood out to me because it makes a good point. Everyone is so in awe of Harry all the time because he survived the attack from Voldemort. And so there must be something special about him or he must be really talented or something. And he comes into this world with all these expectations, like we discussed uh, when they went to Diagon Alley. But now Harry has something to prove to himself that he's talented. His team needed him to catch the snitch early, and he does so. Sometimes we need to prove things to ourselves, not just to others in order to feel worthy. And after the match, he flies over the forest to eavesdrop on Snape and Quirrell. They discuss Fluffy, and we find out that the stone is what's being guarded. And not just by Fluffy, but probably by other things as well. In the next chapter, however, we get another mystery and another problem to solve. Our golden trio catches Hagrid taking out books on dragons in the library. Ron says, quote, But it's against our laws. Dragon breeding was outlawed by the Warlocks Convention of 1709. Everyone knows that, unquote. Which, okay, I would expect a lot of people to know that, but it's gotta be super important and common knowledge if he knows the convention and the year in which it was passed into law. Because that's like super specific. And I feel like most people aren't going to know that about many things. He, um, we also learned that Charlie has burns because they can't be tamed. And they speak of the Commonwealth Green and Hebridean Blacks in Britain. And that muggles need to get obliviated to forget that they saw them. And I bet that whole division of the ministry is super intense and I would love to read all about it. My one question, though, is that if breeding is outlawed, I wonder how long dragons live, unless dragon reservations like the one that Charlie works on are exceptions to the rule and they're allowed to breed, but other people who are not professional dragon wranglers are not allowed to breed dragons. My favorite line in this chapter is Ron questioning, wonder what it's like to have a peaceful life. Ron, my friend, you will never know over the next six books. <laughs> Get used to it. So this whole dragon thing, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, completely throws a wrench into the trio's lives. Hagrid is constantly updating them about the egg, and they end up having to help him take care of it because they're, rightfully so I might add, worried about him. Malfoy overhears them talking about it and catches a glimpse of it and tries to hold it over their heads. And if that isn't one crisis... The other is that Norbert is growing significantly. So they contact Charlie. And I love how Charlie's letter is worded. It's just like, hey, Ron, how are you? Sure, I'll take a dragon off your hands. He doesn't ask questions, doesn't want to know how Ron ended up involved in a dragon scandal or how Hagrid got him. He's just like, yep, I'll take him. No worries. I'll be there. Completely increased love for Charlie here. <laughs> and on another note... Ron gets bitten by Norbert and has to go to Madame Pomfrey. And she must get lied to all the time. By students who don't want to get into trouble. Like, oh, a dog? Sure. But, like, absolutely knows it's a dragon bite and how to treat it. And just doesn't care to know anything else. She's probably one of those teachers who's like, you know what? I don't want to know. I'm just gonna do my job, heal them up. I don't need details. It's fine. And the Malfoy situation gets worse. Because of course it does. Because now not only does Malfoy know the dragon exists, but because Ron left Charlie's note in his textbook, he also knows where and when the dragon exchange is going to happen. 
And the good news is Malfoy gets caught while they're on their way up to the tower. But the bad news is they leave the invisibility cloak at the top of the tower when the exchange is finished. So almost smoothly, but not quite. And Neville gets caught as well. He was trying to help them, which bless him, but everyone loses a shit ton of house points. And it says, quote, even Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs turned on him because everyone had been longing to see Slytherin lose the house cup, unquote. Ties in again to our thoughts on house biases. It's all houses against Slytherin. And in regards to this, Harry swears not to meddle in things that don't concern him. He does. He always will. <laughs> for detention, they serve it with Hagrid in the Forbidden Forest. There's a hurt unicorn that they're looking for. And so while they're on this mission, they meet the centaurs. Harry comes across a hooded figure that's drinking the unicorn's blood. His scar hurts, and he gets rescued by friends. And we learn here that centaurs don't like being used by humans. Like friends giving Harry a ride on his back, and they seem to stay neutral in regards to the events that they foresee. But friends does take a stance. Quote, I set myself against what is lurking in this forest, Bane. Yes with humans alongside me if I must, unquote. Friends asks Harry what he knows about unicorn blood, and Harry says that they've only ever used the horn and tail in potions. And we know that Ollivander uses the hair in his wands as well. Friends states, quote, that is because it is a monstrous thing to slay a unicorn, unquote. That slaying one and drinking its blood gives you a half-life, a cursed life, even if you are close to death. And Hagrid says that they are so fast that even werewolves can't catch them. So you don't have to kill a unicorn to get the parts like the hair and the horn. At least I'm assuming so. So does the horn grow back? Do you build a relationship with them in order to get the parts? Because clearly just a human can't catch one. And I think the crime of killing a unicorn would make it so that you don't have to kill them for the hair or the horn if you're going to use it in potions ingredients. So how does Ollivander get the hair for his wands? And how do shops get the horn and the tail to sell as potions ingredients? That is something I am super interested in knowing. And I'm super interested also in just the ethics of potions ingredients as well, and just how all of that happens. If you have any thoughts, let us know. So, Friends reveals what's in the castle and implies that Voldemort is the one who is actually after it. We also learned that Dumbledore is the only one Voldemort was ever afraid of, and that somehow the invisibility cloak makes its way back to Harry's bed with another mysterious note that reads, just in case. So in chapter 16, Harry realizes that Hagrid may have been the one to tell Snape or Voldemort how to get past Fluffy, that whoever it was was the same person who gave him Norbert the dragon. They want to tell Dumbledore, but when they go to find him, they discover that he's left for London. And their plans to keep an eye on Snape fail spectacularly because literally none of them are subtle at all. So when their plan fails, Harry decides that he is going to go after the stone and try to get it first. And I want to discuss his monologue here. It shows so much about Harry as an individual, as a character, that his priorities don't just include himself. He says, haven't you heard what it was like when he was trying to take over? He isn't going after Voldemort for only a personal reason because he took his parents away from him. But he's going after the stone to prevent him from coming back for everyone's sake. So no one needs to go through the same fear as they did 10 years ago. 
It shows he has empathy because he doesn't know firsthand what it was like for everyone when Voldemort was at large. But he's heard and he cares and he understands enough about the consequences of it happening again. And then we get one of the best moments ever. When Ron asks, but will it cover all three of us? In regards to the cloak. Because like hell are they letting him go alone. And I also just love the moment where Hermione says there's no way she's getting expelled after earning 112% on her charms exam. These two are the best. This whole trio is the best. And Neville, bless him, stands up to them. Which I think is such an important moment for Neville, even though it's an inconvenience for the trio. He's really trying to get over his fear of staying silent. But unfortunately, they have a mission to do and he gets Petrificus Totalist, bless his heart. And they move on onto their mission to go after the stone. And going back to Ron and Hermione for a moment, Harry gives them another out when they reach Fluffy, but they stay with him and it really solidifies their friendship and Harry's support system. And the trick to keep Fluffy asleep is music. And I mentioned before how Fluffy was connected to Cerberus. Well, this connects to Cerberus again with the myth of Orpheus. So Orpheus was a musician and his wife Eurydice dies and he goes to Hades to get her back. And he plays music to Cerberus in order to make him fall asleep in order to get into the underworld. And the myth talks about how he's able to lead his wife almost back to the land of the living, but he's not allowed to look back at her, and he does, and then she goes back to her place with Hades. But the main point I want to make is that there is an overlap here, again, with Cerberus and Fluffy and music and falling asleep in order to get past a three-headed dog. So the obstacles they have are as follows. Devil Snare, Keys, Chess Set, Troll, Potions Riddle. And there is an incredible cliffhanger in this chapter. Once Harry gets through the flames, it reads, quote, It wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. Unquote. Which, oh my god, when you read this for the first time, it's like, who is it? If any of you had a moment like this, please tell us about it. Make sure to email us at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. I want to hear about your reactions because, oh, it's like the best cliffhanger. Every time I come across it again, I'm like, oh my god. Like, who is it? But of course, now I know. But I, the first time around, I didn't. And I was like, oh, what? Now we've arrived at the last chapter of book one. The Man with Two Faces. And it's Coral. The Mirror of Erised is in this room. And it's the key to getting the stone. We learn that James and Snape absolutely hated each other while in school, which Dumbledore extrapolates on later. And we get a look at Voldemort for the first time, who has survived the incident with baby Harry, but has no body. And I just want to make a personal note here that I had to re-record the episode on wands because I kept using present tense when I was talking about Voldemort's wand. And I was like, oh no, I have to talk in past tense because I can't give it away that he comes back at the end of this. So it was very stressful, and I'm so glad I caught myself because I was like, oh my god, if I had launched that episode and been like, yeah, well, Voldemort has this wand, 
when, like, you're literally reading, like, the first few chapters and everyone talks about how Voldemort's dead, you're like, oh. I'd be like, oh boy. So I'm glad I caught that. Fun fact. So Harry discovers the stone in his pocket after looking in the mirror, and when Quirrell tries to get it from Harry, he can't touch him. His skin starts to burn. And we learn that it's from the protection of love Harry has from his mother sacrificing herself for him when Voldemort came to attack. So then Harry wakes up in the hospital wing three days later, and Dumbledore drops some more wisdom when he wakes up and says, quote, As much money and life as you could want. The two things most human beings would choose above all. The trouble is, humans do have a knack of choosing precisely those things that are worst for them, unquote. Just dropping truth bombs all over the place, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Harry, understandably, wants answers. Why does Voldemort want to kill him? Dumbledore, of course, won't or can't answer this right now. So it's something to think about as we go forward in these books. Just keep it in mind. But we do find out that Dumbledore is the one who gave Harry the invisibility cloak. James left it in his possession. Why? We don't know. And I just love how Dumbledore knew James went down to steal food. Like, he knows all the goings-on, but lets kids break the rules, I'm pretty sure. And it ties into what Harry says about Dumbledore wanting to give him a chance to face him. Whether that's responsible or not is a whole other conversation that we can have at some point in another episode. But I think Dumbledore does really let kids break the rules and lets them challenge themselves to see what they can get away with or not. And we learn something super important here. We learn that James saved Snape's life and that Snape is in his debt and hoped that looking after Harry this year would clear it. So something in this backstory is very important and affects Snape's relationship and treatment of Harry. We don't have all the details yet, but it's certainly interesting to keep in mind going forward as well. Um, and it sort of explains at least a little bit more as to why Snape hates Harry so much or acts like he hates him, but then tries to protect him at Quidditch matches. We then have the end of your feast and the house point totals change so that Gryffindor can win the house cup. And listen, I absolutely think that our trio or our quartet deserves the house points that they earned because they literally saved the world. But can you imagine being the Slytherins that are in seventh year and you are like in your last year at Hogwarts ready to like have won the house cup for a full seven years in a row and like you're about to leave school and this was like your last chance to get the house cup and then it just gets taken away from you at the last minute. Oh, that's got to be so frustrating. I'm just saying. I'm sorry. I am such a Slytherin. <laughs> anyway, so at the end of the book, after his train ride home, Harry talks about how the Dursleys don't know that he's not allowed to use magic outside of Hogwarts. So he's going to have a lot of fun with Dudley this summer, which is such a cute way to end it. And I love that Harry has a secret weapon now to make his life just a little bit better at home. Here, I want to discuss our main theme for today, the title of the book, The Sorcerer Slash Philosopher's Stone. In Britain, the title of this book has always been The Philosopher's Stone. 
The Sorcerer's Stone title was used in the U.S. for advertising purposes, but the original title as created by Joe is the Philosopher's Stone. And the Philosopher's Stone is the same name that is used within history in regards to alchemy. And alchemy has been around for a very long time. In one of my sources, it says that, quote, even in the Middle Ages, alchemy was very old, unquote, which is a simple quote, but gets the point across. <laughs> the birthplace is considered to be uh, Alexandria in Egypt, but it's derived from ancient Greece and Assyria. Although I've also read that the word alchemy comes from the Greek word chemia, which actually refers to the counterfeiting of silver and gold, and the Arabic prefix al, which was added to it to give us alchemy. It established itself in the east and then made its way over to western countries like Spain by the 12th century AD, and from there it spread to other European countries. The philosophy was based on the transmutation of metals through the use of mercury and sulfur. And it's during this time in the 12th century that the idea of transmutation really began to seep into the thinking of the time. But just transmutation of metals wasn't the only goal. The two main goals of alchemists were the elixir of life and the philosopher's stone. The elixir was considered, quote, a substance which would confer quasi-immortality upon anyone who should swallow it, curing all sickness, assuaging all pain, and transforming orrery age into blooming youth, unquote. The Philosopher's Stone would have, quote, the same purifying and ennobling office for mineral matter that the elixir of life would have on animal forms. By means of this substance, they could affect the transmutation of base metals into perfect metals, curing them of their sickness and perfecting their nature thus changing copper to gold and lead to silver, performing the great work by projection of the philosopher's stone on base metals in presence of great heat, unquote. Most sources I came across agreed on these points, that the stone was the key to perfecting materials, both human and non-human. Uh, so it was considered to heal illness and produce over 40 times its own weight of copper and lead into gold or silver, and some believed that it was the key to becoming holy and getting closer to God, both by bringing his soul up to a holy state and by giving the person godlike power. Not only this, but it would strengthen a person's moral nature as well, allowing him, quote, increased understanding and heightened faculties. The stone was thus assumed to influence both man's body and mind, ridding him of vainglory and appeasing his ambitions and desires, unquote. Which is very interesting to think about in regards to Voldemort, who purely wants the stone in order to become powerful again and defeat his 11-year-old nemesis. Wouldn't it be hilarious, like, if the stone in Harry Potter worked the same way and Voldemort got it and all of a sudden he had empathy and understanding? The, se the series would be, like, over after book one. And, like, it would all be good. But whether it's actually a stone like the one that's described in the book is up for debate. I really hope I'm saying this right. Philalethes has a quote saying, It is called a stone not because it is like a stone, but only because by virtue of its fixed nature it resists the action of fire, 
as successfully as any stone. In species, it is gold, more pure than the purest, but its appearance is that of a fine powder, in potency a most penetrative spirit, easily capable of penetrating a plate of metal, unquote. So some people believe it's an actual stone, and other people believe it's a powder-like substance, so we're not sure if it's the same thing as the actual physical stone that Harry actually finds in his pocket after looking in the mirror in the last chapter. One of the sources I came across actually explained why people thought they could make gold out of other substances. And so, okay, so I am, I'm just going to say I am not a philosopher and I am also not a scientist. So bear with me while I try to explain this. But based off of my understanding of the text, it seems really interesting. So it describes how the theory comes from findings of gold in nature in the mountains. So someone finding a vein of quartz in a mountainside would, when he would open it, would find sulfides of iron and copper, as well as gold. But upon searching further within the vein, wouldn't find any more gold, just the sulfides. Now, when the sulfides were heated, they would give off fumes of sulfur and oxides of iron and copper would form, which he would recognize as the same substances he found in the quartz vein. But when he washed the end result of the heated sulfides, he'd be surprised to find that there wasn't any gold in it. So here's where it gets a little tricky. If this same guy examined a piece of quartz and found within it two cells, and in here it notes that they'd be sealed completely before they were broken open, both cells have been formed by the sulfides we just discussed, but one is filled with the sulfides and the other contains the oxides of iron and copper, which is what was produced by the heated up sulfides. And with them within the cell is a small piece of gold. So now he questions if everything was sealed and the cells were formed by the sulfides, the sulfides wouldn't be able to leave to make room for the gold. So the substance must have been changed within in order to produce the gold inside of it. So in my understanding, this thought process is what made people believe that gold could be made out of other materials, because it seemed like it happened in nature with the transformation of the sulfides within the quartz vein. And another source I have says that ancient alchemists and philosophers thought that Metals grew like vegetables did. So some searched for the quote-unquote seeds of metals within the earth, but when they couldn't find them, thought that metals were actually instead in a process of evolution, changing within a hierarchy until they became gold. So those two seem to be the basis of why they thought they could take base metals and turn them into gold, but they just needed the philosopher's stone in order to do it. And connected to this is alchemy's use of sulfur in its attempts to create gold and the Philosopher's Stone. So, mercury and sulfur were believed to be the two main ingredients needed within a transmutation into gold. However, the purity of each of these mattered in the process. They had to be perfect, called Philosopher's Mercury and Philosopher's Sulfur, in order to get the perfect result of gold. Mercury would provide the metallic properties, and sulfur would provide for the alterability of the metals. They'd be combined with philosopher's salt, 
which came from purified quicksilver and would help unite the two. The different transmutations provided by this combo would directly correlate to the different stages of perfection. So gold would be the result of the purest of both, while iron would be the result of an impure mercury and like a white pure sulfur. And so another interesting thing that I came across during my research for this episode is that recipes for the Philosopher's Stone tended to be written in poems. And the reason behind it is super practical. Many of those who were practicing alchemy were not fluent in Latin. And so using a recipe that rhymed and could be recalled from memory was easier. And like, yes, this so works. This works to this day. I still use the songs and rhymes that I learned in like eighth grade Spanish class to remember like the future tense when I need to. I, those things completely work and they stick with you forever. And just a side note here, I would love to know what kind of memory devices they use at Hogwarts. Like I know Flitwick has that little rhyming thing, but that's more about making sure you know how to pronounce the spells that you're using. I'd love to know like different little songs or silly ways that like they give the students to remember like the difference between two spells that sound similar or I don't know. I think it'd be so cute and I would just like really love to know how they remember, you know, spells or history facts or something using those devices. But anyway, one of the main poems is called Verses Upon the Elixir, which is a late medieval alchemical poem that helped spread the information and knowledge of the subject through the 15th and 17th centuries. It was, quote, one of the most frequently copied verse texts of the late medieval and early modern period, unquote. It describes the process of creating the stone and then using the stone with mercury in order to get gold. And there are different versions of this poem, but instead of picking one version over another, it seems that all versions are accepted. They're considered multiple approaches to the same goal, so all versions have been copied and discussed with the same end goal in mind. Let's connect all of this information with what we read. Dumbledore drops his wisdom, saying that humans tend to choose precisely what's the worst for them, and here we have a history of people going after exactly what it provides. Money, extended life, godlike powers almost, but is that the only reason people have been trying to discover it or create it? We don't know exactly, and if I could get a little, I don't know what the word is, but... Existential isn't correct, but cynical also maybe isn't correct. But maybe I'm being philosophical, which would fit. Um, are, so are all humans motivated by money and power and immortality? I think it's pretty easy to say yes to that. But I would be sure that there were others who are in it purely for the science, just to see what's possible in the world. And maybe that's the difference that's exemplified between Harry and Voldemort slash Quirrell. Dumbledore rewards those who would want the stone but not use it. Those are the only ones who would be able to get it. And ultimately how he's able to keep it from Voldemort until they discover that Harry has it in his pocket. Can we argue that one of the big themes in this book is that power seeking in order to destroy others is not right? I think yes. 
Trying to elevate yourself while pushing others down is not the way to go. And we see this in several forms. Voldemort, from when he was at large, in a much more violent way than, say, Draco Malfoy in his bullying ways. And Dumbledore expands on this, saying that Voldemort doesn't understand love. That Quirrell, quote, full of hatred, greed, and ambition, sharing his soul with Voldemort could not touch you for this reason. It was agony to touch a person marked by something so good, unquote. We get more of a message of the morality of this book and in this series. Love is important and it's real. And it's something that should be carried through you or with you in what you do. That things like power and greed are ultimately what lead to someone's downfall. I will not include ambition in this because I don't think ambition is necessarily a bad thing. Being driven is important. And I will not fall for your villainization of Slytherin, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I won't do it. But we do have evidence in real life that unlimited power and money corrupts, as well as seeking both of those can also corrupt, regardless of if one achieves it or not. And I think all of this is just important to carry forward as we move on in the series. That things matter, and J.K. Rowling sets up things to matter, in these books. We've gone over several things in book one, like owls, house biases, wands, and all of those things that have a deeper meaning and can really allow you to dive further in to this series, especially as an adult reading them. And I hope that these conversations have been helpful and interesting for all of you. Let's take a moment now to congratulate you on finishing the first Harry Potter book. Those of you who are completely new to this, that is. I know we have a bunch of listeners who are rereading with us too. But those of you who decided to make the leap into this magical world, this incredible fandom, you've officially completed your first step of seven. So congratulations. I am so happy that you've let us guide you through this book, and I hope that it enhanced your reading experience. And it only gets better from here. You're in a similar position to Harry right now, actually. You were exposed to this world for the first time just like he was. And now you know about it and are a part of it. And so I hope you're as excited for the next book as Harry will be to return to Hogwarts. The lucky thing is... You don't have to go home to the Dursleys for the summer before you can get back on the Hogwarts Express. You get to jump right in again with us. We'd love to hear about your reading experience of this first book. Was it too kid-like? Or did you get more out of it than you thought you would? Will you join us for book two? I really hope you say yes to this one. Please email us or tweet at us or comment to us on Instagram. We are at First Years Pod on both Instagram and Twitter, and our email is firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Please let us know how this whole journey was so far. And because this podcast is still relatively new, we're going to hold off on giving away a house cup until after we get through book two. So make sure to tell your friends to join us and rate and subscribe and review and get more people involved in the podcast so they can start their journey and just a reminder that if you leave your name in Hogwarts House in your review, you will get a shout out on here as well as earn house points. So I hope all of you, now that you have read the first book, 
the Sorcerer's Stone, Philosopher's Stone. I hope you guys do take those quizzes on Pottermore. I want to know what your wand is, what house you're in. You guys are officially part of the Potter community, so congratulations and thank you so much. And we will see you next time where we will start Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources for this episode can be found in our show notes and also on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D I T T M E I E R.